The population of the nation of Israel today is about 8.8 million people. That is less than the population of 11 of our United States states. New Jersey, which is about the same size in area as the nation of Israel, has 9 million. New York has roughly 20 million. California, 40 million. Egypt, which borders Israel, has 91 million. Turkey, a bit to the north, has 80 million. Iran, 80 million. Iraq, 37 million. Saudi Arabia, 32 million. And on and on. There is a sea of hostile Muslim neighbors surrounding the nation of Israel today. Israel's land area is also dwarfed by the surrounding nations. 8,000 square miles. 386,000 square miles for Egypt alone, 71,000 for Syria, 169,000 for Iraq, 829,000 for Saudi Arabia, and on and on. Yet the nation survives, and the nation thrives. It should be self-evident to anyone that reads Scripture, and even those that don't read Scripture, that God's hand is upon this nation for some purpose in the end times. The evidence is clear. You have to work really hard to deny that evidence. Last time, we began looking at God's plan for the nation of Israel. We commented that anything that God purposes to do, He's going to do. There is no power on earth or in heaven that can stop it. So we really do need to understand Israel if we are to understand the large picture of our Bibles. What is God doing in our world today? It does relate to the nation of Israel. The Bible says so, and even looking at the way the world is, it says so as well. The benefits of knowing God's plan for the nation of Israel for you are multiple, and you might be wondering, what do I get out of this? Here's some of the things you'd get out of it. This knowledge allows us to see, and to me this is the most important thing, that God is faithful to every word out of His mouth. He's faithful to His callings. It helps us to understand also that biblical prophecy is not hard to understand. I mean, it's not always easy, but it's not a mystery. It's not some hidden meaning buried in there. It it means exactly what it says. It's to be taken in a straightforward way. What God said in plain language to the nation of Israel, He's going to carry out. He doesn't tell us the timing. He doesn't always tell us the manner, but it will result in exactly what God has said. As Bible-believing Christians, we're under obligation to receive that teaching from God. It also helps us to distinguish between the church and Israel. The church is not the nation of Israel, and Israel is not the church. They're unbelieving. They are are still unbelieving, and we're going to talk about that uh, today. The church has its own mission, its commission that we've been given. We are to fulfill that. We have a purpose. We're made in a certain way. We're in a certain age, and we're to carry out that purpose. God has a different purpose for the nation of Israel. They run parallel. They converge in the millennial kingdom, but they're not the same right now. And so we cannot, as a church, glean our purpose for the church by things that Israel was commissioned to do. I think also studying the nation of Israel is an apologetic to the religion of Christianity because Christianity has always had to answer the question, if Jesus is the Messiah of Israel, why did Israel reject her, him? And the answer, of course, is to fulfill prophecy, 
to save the rest of the Gentile world. And also, by the way, Jesus will be accepted by the Jewish nation. I think also the benefit to this study is it gives us hope. We need hope. We look at the world. There is no hope in this world. There's no hope in any political party. There's no hope in any nation of the world. There's no real hope in democracy. Come on now, none of that stuff, if you're really thinking about it, can overcome the sinfulness of humanity. We just will head into more and more war. That's the way history has always been. Why do we think in our generation it'll be any different? We have hope that the future of this world is in the hands of God and His Messiah, who is Jewish. And so we return to this intriguing and I think faith-building subject in the Scripture. We go back to Acts chapter 3, if you'd open there, and we'll read verses 17 through 26. Acts chapter 3 and verses 17 through 26. Peter is preaching. He says, And now, brethren, I know that you acted in ignorance, just as your rulers did also, but the things which God announced beforehand by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Therefore, repent and return, so that your sins may be wiped out, in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus, the Christ appointed for you, whom heaven must receive until the period of restoration of all things, about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from ancient time. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. To him you shall give heed to everything he says to you. And it will be that every soul that does not heed that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. And likewise, all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and his successors onward also announce these days, it is you who are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. For you first God raised up his servant and sent him to bless you by turning every one of you from your wicked ways. So these are powerful words, but I think they're also forward-looking words. And they come in the midst of Peter's second sermon in the book of Acts. We've dubbed, uh, it's been dubbed the colonnade message because of where it was spoken. After Peter pointedly charged the Jews of Jerusalem earlier in this message, if you glance back through verses 11 through 16, of rejecting and killing their own Messiah, Peter is now appealing to them to repent. Repent of your wicked deeds, repent of your evil deeds, and also return, return to God, so that God will fulfill in that very generation, Peter was holding out hope for that generation, God's promises of what? Of times of refreshing, of a restored kingdom, of a refreshed world. That's what he was holding out to them in the sermon. So really, this is one of the better texts in the New Testament to understand how God is dealing with the nation of Israel. We mentioned last time, if you were here from this very text, that we glean a number of truths about the nation of Israel from this, really five larger truths about the nation of Israel. Just by way of review, the first truth we learned last time is that Israel acted ignorantly in killing their Messiah, in killing Jesus. That's in verse 17. Look at it. That ignorance was a willful kind of ignorance on Israel's part. On God's part, it was a judicial blinding of them so that that generation is guilty for their ignorance. They were willfully ignorant, and God holds them guilty for what they did. Yet, it is interesting that it's an admission on the part of Peter that they really did not know. They really did not understand they were murdering their own king, their long-awaited Messiah. 
It was a genuine ignorance, though, from willfulness. Concerning this very ignorance, another apostle, the Apostle Paul, agreed. He wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verses 7 and 8, he's speaking about his ministry. He said, we speak God's wisdom. And then he went on to describe the wisdom. He said, the wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood, for if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. They'd really gotten it. They would never have crucified Him. So they didn't get it. They were ignorant. The second truth about the nation of Israel, also by way of review, is that God planned for Israel's Messiah to suffer and to die. That's in verse 18, if you look at it. Verse 18, while Israel was acting ignorantly, God was acting purposefully to fulfill the scriptures that were spoken beforehand by the prophets. And there were plenty of these Old Testament scriptures that spoke not just of the reign of Messiah, but also of the sufferings of Messiah. Remember, this was not put down in a timeline for the prophets of the Old Testament. They had themes, and they didn't really know how it all fit together. But clearly, the Messiah was to suffer. He was to bleed, and He was to be cut off. He was to die. He was to be rejected by the nation. Even scriptures speak of His burial and His resurrection as well. All of that is prophesied hundreds of years in advance, and now we know through the Dead Sea Scrolls that all of that was really written in advance. There's empirical evidence about that, so no one can deny that these were prophecies given centuries before they actually happened. Further proof the Bible is the Word of God. Today we're picking up with the third truth about the nation of Israel, and I hope that each truth takes us a little bit deeper into understanding what God is doing with the nation. Third. And this is the beginning of verse 19. God requires, God mandates the nation of Israel to repent. You see that, right? Verse 19. God requires that of the nation. Please focus on those words. He says, therefore, and remember, he's talking to the unbelieving nation right in Jerusalem, right in their own temple, and he says to them, therefore, repent and return. Just a little part of Peter's entire message, but a critical portion. This really is the hinge on which the entire program for Israel is going to turn. Whether they repent or not, or when they repent, starts or keeps stopped the program for Israel and what God is doing with Israel. So these are really important words. That term, therefore, un, in Greek, Peter used twice in his Pentecost sermon, it indicates an inference or a conclusion that is to be drawn from what was just spoken. In this sermon, the second sermon, that therefore functions this way. You Jews acted in ignorance, but God told you all about the Messiah and prophecy, and He fulfilled that. Therefore, God now requires you to change your mind and repent and return. There was no getting around this requirement from God to Israel. The Holy Spirit moved Peter to speak it that day, and the Holy Spirit of God would not allow them to get around this requirement. It was mandatory. There's no getting around repentance for the nation of Israel. If they're not repentant, then they haven't yet fulfilled what God is going to do in them. By the way, it's the same requirement that Peter laid on the Jews at the end of the Pentecost sermon in Acts 2. When they said, what should we do? He said, repent. The first thing that he said, metanoeo, the verb. It's in here it's in the imperative mood. What does that mean? It's a command. God is not suggesting this. This is not one avenue. This is what God requires. We talked about repentance a lot back there. You remember what it is. Repentance is a complete change of mind. 
a complete change of mind that results in a dramatic change in purpose and in life and in action. That is why the term repent is joined with the conjunction there and the term return. Return requires someone to come back to God, to come back to the teaching. It implies they strayed away, they've left, they've departed, and they've done that. God hasn't left. Now they need to return. They need to come back to faith in God. They need to come back to obedience to God. It's a requirement of the entire person turning and coming back. There's no repenting in the mind without returning to God with the whole person. When you wonder and you look at someone, you're dealing with someone, and you're wondering, did they really repent? The only way to know somebody has repented is that by the 180-degree change in the direction of their life. If you don't see that change in life, you have no reason to believe they've actually repented. They may have tears. They may not have tears. They may be sorrowful. They may be determined. It's not the expression of their faith or how you interpret their emotions in some subjective way. It is whether or not their, their actions and their purpose has changed. True change of mind always results in a change of life's direction. Paul taught that in Acts 26 himself. When he was preaching about repentance, he said that he was preaching that the people should repent and turn to God. Very similar to what Peter is saying here. This is Acts 26, 19 and 20. The people should repent and turn to God. And then he added this, performing deeds appropriate to repentance. You could put it this way, performing deeds appropriate to a true mind change. There are plenty of people that act like they're religious and they act like they've returned to God. They profess Christianity today, but they haven't changed the purpose and the direction of their life. They haven't really repented or believed in Christ. That's why it's so important to preach repentance because there's so many people deceived, even inside the church, that think they have a faith in Christ, but they've never changed the purpose and direction of their life. They've never submitted their heart really to what God says. God would not accept false repentance, only the tears, but no actions. God would not receive half measures from the nation of Israel. There would be no way that the leaders of Israel could say, let's strike a bargain, let's have a compromise here. We'll give you, God, 60% and we'll take the 40% the way we want it. God doesn't bargain like that. Same is true in your own life. You may say, well, Lord, I'll do this if you do that. God's the one in charge. He's God, you're not. They had to admit they were wrong, and they had to come fully back, no excuses, no stipulations. Unconditional surrender to God. Simon Kistemacher in his New Testament commentary says, The acts of repenting and turning to God must be followed by deeds that show the reality of repentance. He goes on, To be precise, repentance denotes that the whole person with heart and mind and soul is turned around from sin to service. You're not serving the Lord. You haven't repented. And Peter is telling the Jews there can be no return to the God of Israel for you until you change your mind about Jesus Messiah. You can return to God only this way, by confessing with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. He's your king. Jesus is now the issue for the nation of Israel. He is the issue. God made him the issue. 
God has made him the issue for 2,000 years. That's why they've been suffering so much scattered throughout the nations. God doesn't compromise. He deals very severely with this nation until they come to acknowledge Jesus is the Messiah. He's the issue. No one then, no one today can repent while ignoring Jesus Christ. The Bible Knowledge Commentary out of Dallas Seminary says, they had refused, the Jews had refused the pre-cross Jesus. Now they were being offered a post-resurrection Messiah, and they needed to believe in Him. Repentance required them to abandon their previous beliefs about Jesus. They were wrong, and they had to admit it. And they had to put their faith fully in Jesus. What God requires from the Jews this day, 2018, is the same that He has always required from them. He requires from them today full repentance and returning and belief in Christ. These were the first words of John the Baptist in his preaching ministry to the Jews. He said, repent. And then he added, make ready the way of the Lord. Make His path straight. That's in Matthew 3, verses 2 and 3. Richard Roberts, in his book, Repentance, the first word of the gospel, says, Repentance is like clearing a highway of holiness to and from God. Jesus started His preaching ministry with exactly the same message, Matthew 4, 17. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, is drawn near. Jesus warned all the Jews in Luke 13, 5, Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Repentance is the crucial part of the commission of Jesus' church to all of the nations. In Luke 24, 46, Jesus was speaking after His resurrection, and He said, Thus it is written that the Christ would suffer and rise again from the dead the third day, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins would be preached in His name to all the nations, beginning from Jerusalem. Let them repent first was the, was the point, and then to all the nations that they would repent. The first command Peter thundered to the Jews on the day of Pentecost was repent. This is the same in the Old Testament. Peter's command to return to the Lord was not some novel requirement. Peter stands in a long line of prophets calling the people of Israel generation by generation back to their God. The prophets of old said to Israel, you need to shuv, return is the term in Hebrew. Shuv, return with all of your heart. Isaiah 31, 6, for a sample, return to the Lord from whom you have deeply defected, O sons of Israel. Isaiah 55, 7, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return, shuv, to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 3, therefore say to them, thus says the Lord of hosts, return to me declares the Lord of hosts, that I may return to you, says the Lord of hosts. God sought repentance from Israel in every generation. He still seeks the repentance of Israel today. But they are not repenting. They are not. They still are not acknowledging Jesus as Messiah. You know, we're still early in the book of Acts in our studies here. But we can see as we go throughout the book of Acts that the Jews here in Jerusalem and elsewhere in the world, as the gospel is preached to them again and again, they're told to repent, repent, repent. Again and again, they're told that. And they did not repent. They would not repent. The few, yes. The vast majority, no. They did not return to God. They were willful. Does that mean God is done with the nation of Israel? Not at all. 
When they did not repent in generations before the time of Jesus and John the Baptist, God did not reject them. When they committed apostasy as a nation and they went after other gods, God forgave them and drew them back to Himself. When they worshipped idols and violated the covenant of Moses, God gave them severe consequences for their sin, but God on His part kept His Word. When God made promises to them, just as God makes promises to anybody, He meant every single word. That matters to me because God has made promises to the church and God has made promises to believers in Jesus, yes? And I want to believe that every single word He said is going to happen as He said it's going to happen. I'm not going to be throwing a curveball in the end times. And that leads us to the fourth truth about the nation of Israel. When Israel repents, notice how I said it, when Israel repents, God will fulfill His promises to the nation. When Israel repents, God will fulfill His promises to the nation. That's in the latter part of verse 19 and in the verse 21, if you'd look at that. Look what it says, so that, repent and return so that... Your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send Jesus the Messiah, the Christ appointed for you whom heaven must receive until the period of the restoration of all things. Please understand, Peter is speaking at this point to the unbelieving nation gathered under that colonnade in the temple who had seen this miracle of the the lame man. He's speaking to them. These are not believers in Jesus. He's not talking to the church. He's speaking of a glorious future for the nation of Israel. The Holy Spirit, through Peter, promises a threefold result when the nation of Israel will repent and return, and God moves in that direction. First, their sins will be wiped away. Their sins will be wiped away. The wiping away of sins depends on the repenting and the returning. Please see that. And wiping away of sins is complete. It refers to taking away their guilt entirely, taking away uh, uh, later the very presence of sin. The term to, to wipe away means to plaster or wipe over or wipe out. In Revelation chapter 3 and verse 5 and Revelation chapter 7 and verse 17, it means to blot out or it means to erase or to wipe away as in all tears are wiped away or all, all is blotted out so it cannot be seen anymore. As bad as the nation of Israel's sin was against God killing the Messiah, how do you get worse than that? How do you get a sin worse than murdering the Messiah? As bad as that was, Peter said all of that would be wiped out. All of the guilt for that would be erased. All of it. It's really stunning if you think about it. God is still willing at this point to receive the nation after the death of the Messiah, after the resurrection. How loving is our God? How merciful is our God? We think about Him. It's just amazing, isn't it? God demonstrates His own love towards us in that while we were yet, what? Sinners. That means while we're breaking His commandments and violating His commandments, while we're His enemies, while we're opposed to His will in our life, when we're at our worst, that didn't stop His love towards us. If you ever think God doesn't love me, you have to remember back (laughs) 
There's nothing you and I can do to commend ourselves towards God. He didn't look at you and said, I like you, and that's why I'm going to forgive you. That's not at all what he did. His love is so much greater than our own kind of love. We tend to forgive those that we like and still want in our lives and forget about those we don't like. That's not how God is. God takes us at our our worst, and he says, I will be willing to forgive you if you just will turn. That's God. That's his love. It's supernatural love. It's unbelievable love. We could just park it right here and just talk about that. Paul reflected on that in his own life in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 13. He said, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor, he, he, he went after Christians and tried to get rid of them. And he says, and a violent aggressor. Are any of you that? Are any of you a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor? Are any of you like that? Yet he says, yet I was shown mercy. I was shown mercy. And he reflected on that. He said, I acted ignorantly in unbelief. I didn't know what I was doing. Yes, God is abundant in mercy. God is abundant in compassion. When God revealed himself to Moses on the mount, first thing he said is, the Lord, the Lord God, he's compassionate and he's gracious and he's slow to anger. That's how the true God is. That's how he is in character. Over and over, he promised the nation of Israel these words. I don't know how anyone could hear and read these words and think that God is not going to forgive the nation of Israel and receive the nation of Israel back. Isaiah 1.18, come now and let us reason together. It's as if he said, he said, I know you've been hypocritical and you've been sinful, but come and sit down. Let's have a conversation. Let's reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be what? Do you remember? White as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they will be like wool. Isaiah 43, verse 25. I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. I think Peter was alluding to this passage, Isaiah 43, 25, when he used that blotting out of sins. The prophets and the apostles were well studied in Scripture. Isaiah 44 Verses 22 and 23, I have wiped out your transgressions like a thick cloud and your sins like a heavy mist. Return to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into shout of joy, you mountains, O forest, and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Jacob, and in Israel he shows forth his glory. Jacob, Israel, get the point? Peter and the apostles in the New Testament continued the prophetic message of forgiveness for the nation of Israel. Acts 5, verse 31. Jesus is the one whom God exalted to His right hand as a prince and a savior to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus was exalted so that it will come about that Israel will be granted that repentance and forgiveness of sins. Acts chapter 10, verse 43, of Jesus all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, not just Israel. All of this should result in joy. All of this should result in relief from guilt. You say you believe in the cross of Christ, you carry around in your mind guilt, throw it on to the cross of Christ. Throw it on His shoulders. He bore our sins in His body on the cross, right? 
He was righteous, we are unrighteous. He imputed His righteousness to us. That's where your guilt should be buried. Joy should take its place. And that's the first benefit of their Israel repenting, Israel returning. Now, second is the times of refreshing will come. The times of refreshing will come. Notice he says that. This is very exciting. Times, did you notice that chronos is in the plural? It's not singular. What does that mean? That means Peter's talking about a succession of times. He's talking about something that's going on and on. It's not going to be a brief period. He's not talking about the limited time like the time of the church. He's talking about some time beyond this age. He's talking about the millennial kingdom. The millennial kingdom. In fact, this is the same word that Jesus used back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 7 and verse 6, starts in 6, and he said, uh, they asked him, Lord, is it at this time that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Remember Jesus' response? It's not for you to know the times, same word, times or epochs, which the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, he agreed with them that there's going to be this restoration of the kingdom for Israel, but it was not for them to know these times. When would it happen? It was not for them to know that. And so this is referring to the restoration of the rule of God in Israel. Refreshing times. Doesn't that sound beautiful? Times of refreshing. It could be times of relief. It could be translated that way. It was used uh, in the Greek version of the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 8 and verse 11 for the relief that the, the Egyptians got after the frogs, the plague of frogs were removed. Imagine frogs being all over everywhere and then they're removed and then there was this, ah, you know, it was refreshing. In Jewish intertestamental literature, this term refreshing was used for the reign of Messiah. In other words, the millennial kingdom. And these, this, uh, these times of refreshing, please notice, are not something that men are going to produce by, by coming together as the nations of the world and, and agreeing to get along, and it's not going to happen by the effort of man. That's going to produce the one world government of the Antichrist. This is something that will come from the presence of the Lord, please notice. It's the Lord who grants it. It's the Lord who gives these times of refreshing. Remember when Jesus said to Pilate, my kingdom is not of this realm, that's because it's, the nations of this world cannot produce this, cannot bring in this time of refreshing, cannot bring in Messiah's rule. It has to come from the presence of God. God and His sovereignty will bring it in. It's all of His mercy and all of His grace. Why doesn't God just quit on the world? Why would we even have a time of refreshing to look forward to? Because our God is a faithful God, because our God is a loving God, a merciful God. The Old Testament spoke of these times of refreshing again and again. Every single one of those Jews would not have thought, oh, he's referring to the church. Every single one of those Jews that Peter was preaching to there would have taken this in the context of what they were taught in the Old Testament prophecies that had an abundant description of these times of refreshing. There's nothing unclear about these Old Testament prophecies. They should be taken in a straightforward manner. I wish I had an hour just to read all of them to you. They're on and on about what this reign of Messiah will be like, how abundant it will be, how it will affect every aspect of nature and of the nations and of our own attitudes. Some sampling, Isaiah 11, starting in verse 6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. 
The, how, do you, how do you spiritualize that? The lion will eat straw like the ox. People ask me, what does that mean? That means the lion is going to eat straw like the ox. <laughs> the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. They will not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. That's not now. It should be self-evident. Isaiah 35 Verses 1 through 10, just some of those verses. The wilderness and the desert will be glad and the Arabah will rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It will blossom profusely and rejoice with rejoicing and shout of joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it. Notice the spills past Israel. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. It goes on. Then the eyes of the blind will be opened and the ears of the deaf will be unstopped. Then the lame will leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. For waters will break forth in the wilderness and streams in the Arabah. The scorched land will become a pool and the thirsty ground springs of water. And it goes on. Again, all of those times of refreshing are contingent on what? The repentance of Israel. The hinge, right? The repentance of Israel. The millennial kingdom follows the repentance of Israel. The repentance of the nation first, the returning of the nation to God through Jesus, then these times of refreshing. Israel will not get refreshment there. If you were to look at the history of Israel over the last 2,000 years, you see no refreshment for them wherever they would go, here and there. Even when they're back on their land now, they're constantly carrying around their rifles and looking out for the next enemy attack. There's no refreshment for them. There's no rest for them. And God won't let it because they're unbelieving and they're unrepentant still. You know, many churches have taught and continue to teach that God has already fulfilled all of His promises for the nation of Israel, and there's no sense in looking for any more of them. They point to the land that was possessed in the times of Joshua and onward. They point to the kingdoms that were established under, under David and Solomon. They point to the birth of the Messiah as fulfilling all that God said He would do to the nation. We certainly know He's fulfilled some. But fulfilling all of it is not possible. For three simple reasons, and I'll go through this for you so you understand. First, long past the days of Joshua, long past the days of David, and even past the days of Solomon, the Old Testament prophets said there was still coming in the future a restored kingdom to Israel. So obviously God had more to give to the nation. In fact, the prophets kept promising a future nation such as Isaiah 2 and verse 2. Now it will come about that in the last days the mountain of the house of the Lord will be established as the chief of the mountains and will be raised above the hills and all the nations will stream to it. And many people will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that He may teach us concerning His ways and that we may walk in His paths. For the law will go forth from Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Second reason, Jesus himself indicated that Israel would have its restored kingdom. We looked at that text already in Acts chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. We already covered that. He very clearly agreed with them there will be a restored nation. Third, the apostles themselves in the New Testament teach it right here in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 3, even after the coming of the Holy Spirit, even after the birth of the church, 
And we could add Paul's statement about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem in 2 Thessalonians 2, 4. Why would there be a temple rebuilt in Jerusalem? To fulfill the prophecies towards the nation of Israel, literally. That's 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 4. And then there is maybe the most crucial passage in the New Testament, and that is Romans chapter 11. And I want us to turn to Romans 11 now. I want to give a sketch of this for you. It's just the next book. If you'd flip forward there, a very powerful passage. Everybody turn there and focus in on this chapter, particularly towards the end of the chapter. Romans chapter 11, I'm going to start actually in verse 25. But as you're turning... I want to develop a little bit of the context for what Paul is doing. You know, Romans is a very systematic presentation of the entire Christian faith and what it is like from the sinfulness of man to the justification by faith and how to be sanctified. By the time Paul reaches chapters 9, 10, and 11 of Romans, he's taking up a question about the nation of Israel. Many consider Romans 9, 10, and 11, and particularly chapter 11, the quintessential text for what the future of the nation of Israel will be in the New Testament. When people want to see this truth taught in the New Testament, here's the text that directly and clearly and in an extended portion teaches it. This is important. You think about 9, 10, 11, three chapters in the most important theological work in the entire New Testament, three large chapters are given to demonstrating that there's going to be a future for the nation of Israel. That means that this is actually a pretty important teaching. The paragraph starts in verse 25. It goes down through verse 32. But I want to talk about just Romans 9 through 11 just a little bit here. Three chapters in Romans. And, and it's dealing with one very important question to the early church. The church today doesn't seem to, to worry about it as much, but in the first century, it was a very important question to them. It's one that would come up over and over again in their preaching and teaching to the Jews. It was important for the apologetic of the church. And that question was this, what is going to happen to the nation of Israel since they rejected Jesus and are unbelieving? That was a nagging question to them. If you were to flip back to chapter 9, and I'll just give you the survey, Paul charged the nation of Israel of pursuing righteousness by their own good works rather than by faith in Messiah. In chapter 9 and verse 3, it makes it clear that Paul is writing about the nation of Israel because he calls them Israelites, and he says they are my kinsmen according to the flesh. He's talking about his physical heritage. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, remember? By the time you move into chapter 10, Paul continued by pointing out that the unbelieving nation of Israel did have a zeal for God. Yes, they did. But it was a zeal that was not according to knowledge. They were ignorant of the true God. He wrote that the good news that was preached to the Jews was something they chose not to believe. He ends chapter 10 by pointing out in verse 21 of chapter 10 that all day long God had held out His hands in love to a stubborn and rebellious nation, the nation of Israel. And they still would not return. God was there loving them, waiting for them, holding out His arms to receive them and accept them, and they would not return. Based upon that that history there in chapters 9 and 10, when you arrive at chapter 11 and verse 1, Paul asks a very important question. And it's the question that really we're dealing with here in Acts 3. I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? What a crucial question. God chose the nation of Israel. He chose the physical descendants of Abraham to be His people. 
He did that. Has God now rejected them? Has God now rejected the Israelites? His emphatic answer in verse 1 is, no, may it never be. God would never reject the nation of Israel. That should be clear to everyone. I don't know why that's hard to interpret. And then in the rest of chapter 11, Paul proves it. He proves that God will not reject the Israelites by two main arguments. Now, he has a lot of things he says in here, but the two main arguments are these. First, Paul argued that there are some Israelites in the presence who did believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, and they are now inside the church. They're believers in Christ. He calls them a remnant, and he speaks about how there have been remnant of believers throughout the history of Israel. He dealt with that in the earlier chapters. So there's a remnant there. They're believing, so that's one answer, but that's not the complete answer. His second answer in verse 12 and following, he writes, Now, if Israel's transgression, now that means killing the Messiah and not believing in the gospel. If Israel's transgression be riches for the world and their failure be riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their, what does it say, fulfillment be? Verse 12, this is a fantastic statement because it says there's more for the nation of Israel. Israel's transgression and Israel's failure refers to their rejecting the Christ. They're being hardened in unbelief. The riches refers to the blessings that, because of their unbelief, spilled over to the Gentiles. Because of this time, their rejection of the Messiah, now something wonderful has happened in the world, and that is the gospel is being preached in Greece, and the gospel is being preached in Macedonia, and in Achaia, and it's being preached in Italy, and it's being preached in Spain, and it's being preached in Northern Africa, and now we know, preached throughout Europe and Asia and and Africa and South America and North America, where we are. Their fulfillment, means Israel's fulfillment, shows there's still a time in the future for the fulfillment of the nation of Israel. Verse 15 echoes what Paul wrote in verse 12. And again, it's very important. For if Israel's rejection, that is rejection of the gospel, be the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance of the gospel be but life from the dead? He means that literally. There will be resurrection from the dead when Israel receives their Messiah. If a faithless Israel results in the gospel going out from Jerusalem to all of the nations and many people getting forgiveness of sins and many people being gathered to populate into the kingdom and many people rejoicing in the salvation that they have, how much greater blessing will the world get when the nation of Israel finally figures it out and realize Christ is the Messiah? In other words, if Israel's rejection of the Messiah resulted in something that's so wonderful, that is the church and the preaching of the gospel and this age in which we live, so Gentiles might have light and Gentiles might have salvation, imagine what kind of blessing will come to the entire globe, to all the nations of the world when Israel stops rejecting Jesus as Messiah and truly and sincerely as a nation in mass repents and believes in Christ. Just imagine that. That greater age than the age of the church is the millennial kingdom. It's a greater age. This fulfillment refers to the the blessings far and wide that will be poured forth from the presence of God upon the entire world, an age like we have never seen or experienced. Israel turns to their king and God starts the program again, dealing with them and pouring out blessings on the world. 
It's unbelievable. It's unimaginable. So clearly, Paul is saying the nation is going to repent. Now, at this point, we don't have time for it. Paul chose to use two illustrations. The greater illustration is the olive tree. And he's basically arguing there that the nation of Israel is not cast off. They will be grafted back in, though they're in unbelief. When we finally come to verse 25, all of that was to get you ready for verse 25. This is the climax of the entire section, chapter 9, 10, and 11, builds up to this crescendo. So if you kind of got lost in all of that, hopefully I'll get you back here. This is the teaching about the nation. Zero in on it. For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimate, uh, estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel. Remember, there's a remnant still that believes. Until, notice that, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Come in what? Come into the tree. Come into belief. Come into Christ. And thus... All Israel will be saved. Please notice that the same group that was partially hardened in unbelief will be the group that the future will be all will be saved. A partial hardening has happened to the nation of Israel now. That cannot mean the church. The church isn't hardened. The church is the ones that believe. And the hardening will only occur until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. That's our church age. Until, until all of that comes into the faith and the promises, that word until speaks, again, that there's, there's a hardening of the majority of Israelites, but that's going to end. The majority of Israelites will, will then, at that time, get saved. What will happen when the fullness of Gentiles comes in? Verse 26, all Israel will be saved. The word Israel means the same thing that it has meant every single time it has been used throughout the book of Romans and, frankly, throughout all of Paul's writings. All of this passage, every single time it refers to the nation of Israel, there, there cannot be any justification for interpreting it any differently there. It's not just the Jewish believers in the church. If that were true, there'd be no need for them to be grafted back in. They're already in. No, it's the unbelieving nation that's outside. The context is clear. All, now, all Israel doesn't mean every last single physical descendant of Israel. It doesn't mean that. It means what the context is referring to. There's a partial hardening, but then the, the, the nation as a whole, as a group, will repent. The vast majority, in other words, at that time, alive, will humble themselves and will repent in mass as a nation. And Paul, to make sure that we know exactly what he's talking about, quotes the Old Testament in verses 26 and 27, which only have as their context the nation of Israel. And then verse 28 is really the clincher. From the standpoint of the gospel, Paul writes, they, who's he talking about? The nation of Israel are enemies for your sake. You know, these, these guys are like a, a synagogue of Satan sometimes are called in the New Testament. They're enemies for your sake, but from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Paul could not state it more explicitly. The nation as a whole who presently are enemies of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they're not our brothers today. We don't support the nation of Israel because they're of like precious faith. They're not. You know, they are unrepentant. 
but they're still as a nation, not individually, but as a nation, they're beloved by God for the sake of the promises that God made to the fathers. Who's that talking about? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God still loves them, and God is still going to fulfill His promise to them. Why? Verse 29, look at it, underscore it. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. God never takes back what He promises. God does not change what He promises and said, this is better. He does exactly what He said He would do. God, beloved, is faithful to His Word. He stands by His people. That's never going to change. And I'm so thankful for that. It's the same God. We know what He said. We know what He said is true and we stand by it. That's our faith. God called the nation of Israel. God promised gifts to the nation of Israel. And He's never going to change that. It's irrevocable. That word literally means without regret. God doesn't say, I regret choosing Israel. It's unchangeable. Dr. Vlock in his TMS notes, Master Seminary notes, quotes Dr. Blasing, and he says, are there theological reasons for believing that Israel has a future? Yes, because God is faithful to His Word. Yes, because for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O sons of Jacob, are not consumed. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Yes, because the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Romans eleven twenty nine. Beloved, this is a definitive text. I remember hearing our beloved Dr. R.C. Sproul worked through this text and I was thinking he's got to come out with Israel. He's got to come out. You know, he's faithful to the text and he admitted, as many have admitted, though he didn't come all the way. I'm sure the Lord's corrected him by now. (laughs) But he admitted there's no way to interpret this other than a mass conversion of ethnic Israel in the end times. And that's exactly right. He didn't let his theology get in the way of handling the text accurately. This, without a doubt, means the nation of Israel in mass will repent. And what will happen when they repent? Well, we have more to talk about next Lord's Day. But there is more. There's a lot more. And I want you to see this is a dominant theme in the Word of God and one we need to know better and understand and believe. Father in heaven, thank you that you are faithful to our souls. Thank you that you have been faithful to Israel. You're faithful to the church. You're faithful to us individually. And we so often are faithless. If you cast us off, Lord, because of the the murderous thoughts that we have in our minds, if you cast us off because of the adulterous thoughts we've had in our minds, if you cast us off because of the proud and selfish things we thought and motives we possessed and maintained in our hearts, oh Lord, we would be lost. But you're faithful to our souls. Please help us to be more faithful to you and to reflect your character. We love you, Lord, for speaking in plain language that we can all understand and for trusting in your word. Build our faith and our ability to, to see what your, what your promises in Scripture are, that we might not in any way, Lord, miss what you're going to do in the end times and be blind to it while you're unfolding it, if it is indeed in our age. We bless you, Lord, for your constancy that you do never change, so we, even we are not consumed. 
Thank you for Jesus who sits at your right hand and constantly intercedes for us. We rely on it for our heart often strays. Thank you for being faithful to us even when we are faithless to you. Amen.